Welcome to Rock and Ice's My Epic Podcast, presented by Outdoor Research. I'm Daniel Tachik. As you already know, Outdoor Research has been at the forefront of mountain equipment innovation since 1981. Their products have shown them to be committed to improving the climber and alpinist's experience with awesome gear, from jackets to gaiters to bivy sacks. It's not about summits for OR. It's not about finish lines or sends. It's the journey. So if you've got a journey in the near future, check them out. You won't regret it. With the help of Outdoor Research, we've got something special for you this week. An epic from Jeff Jackson, former editor of Rock and Ice and Reconteur Extraordinaire. In Jeff's epic, which first appeared in Ascent, our special annual Best of the Best publication, the problems are not caused by rockfall, thunderstorms, or wrapping off the end of his ropes. Instead, it all started with an alert on his phone that read, Emergency Alert! ballistic missile threat inbound to Hawaii. Please enjoy as Jeff Jackson's father-in-law, the Hollywood actor Michael Norrie, narrates this unique epic. All right, let's get to it. At about 8 o'clock on Saturday morning, January 13th, I was standing in my kitchen in Makawao, Hawaii, eating a pancake, working on a haiku. I was teaching haibun, linked prose and verse, and wanted to try to write a haibun about a climb. The 17th century Japanese master poet Matsuo Bashu had written his classic travel sketches as haibun. And what is a climb, if not a journey? For inspiration, I'd been reading Basho's Narrow Road to the Deep North, a haibun travelogue about his years-long road trip into the wild and dangerous Edo period Japan, where travelers risked brutal cold, illness, and meeting roving brigands who'd chop your arm off with a samurai blade just to take the gold off of your fist. Basho sold his house in 1689 and took off for two and a half years, traveling over a thousand miles and living on handouts as a Zen-influenced pilgrim. In 1694, five years after starting his northern journey, Basho died back in his home province at the age of 50. That morning in January, I was standing, eating, looking at a haiku I'd written, holding a book and hollering at my two boys to be quiet so that I could get in the right mood to tell the story behind a route that Guillermo Marun and Coco de Velberg and I had put up a couple of years before. The route is Sky Turtle, 510 plus. A long, steep hike past ancient petroglyphs and shelter caves leads you to a room-sized hole in the mountain, the remnants of a giant gas bubble. You make five repels out of the hole past orange, black, and purple streaks that trail down the gently overhanging trachyte, a close geological relative to the cyanite of Waco tanks. Foggy, green, rainbow-laced valleys rise northward toward the crest of the West Maui Mountains, jutting like pyramids from the Pacific Ocean which shines like a 2,500-mile-long grow light behind you. From the Halekoa tree at the base, you climb back up the only crack, 100 feet of 5'9-plus, protected by cams up to 6 inches, a pitch that will keep away the riffraff. 
continue up ladders of tacky finger buckets and worm-like lava flows for six more pitches, all bolted. Wandering, bulging, cutting across the big wall, they take you places where you can really feel the mana, or spiritual power, all around. Sky turtle is a metaphor for the mystery that hovers above us all the time. Climbs can be portals into that mystery. You just have to step outside the familiar confines of habit, or something like that. Honestly, I was having a little trouble with that metaphor. After some stern hectoring from me, the boys quieted down, and I tried again to conjure a poetic frame of mind. Looking for insight, I opened my book, and I read the introduction. In other words, the narrow road to the deep north was life itself for Basho. And he traveled through it as anyone would travel through the short span of his life here, seeking a version of eternity and in things that are, by their own very nature, destined to perish. That's the contradiction of life, I thought. Everything we love dies. At precisely that moment my phone buzzed, I saw the screen a little exclamation point in a triangle. I'd seen that before. It was a flood alert. But instead of the familiar flood warning in a glowing light gray box under the heading emergency alert were the all-cap words, ballistic missile threat inbound to Hawaii, seek immediate shelter, this is not a drill. Perhaps you're wondering, did he really read that heart-rending line from Nobuyaki Yuasa's intro at precisely the moment the missile alert went out? Yes. My mind went blank. Then my guts melted. I called my boys over and I hugged them tight for a long time. My mother-in-law goes by the name of Unchi, which is Lakota for grandmother. She came in from the, the Ohana, a grandmother's cottage, and pointed to her phone. Did you, did you get this ballistic missile inbound to Hawaii? My 10-year-old Kai perked up. Missile? He asked. I could tell he thought it was cool. Blonde and long-limbed, into baseball, Norse myths, and playing the violin. Kai trusts in the universe. I don't think he had any sense of danger. He's also into that fearless boy stage of broken collarbones and chipped teeth, and to him, maybe missiles were just another name for a rocket ship. Isaac, seven, is more perceptive. He picked up on the vibe, he hugged me harder, and he said, I don't want missiles to come here. I don't either, I said. What do you say to your still pudgy, blue-eyed, soft-cheeked first grader about the inbound missile alert? I couldn't think of a single honest way to assure him of its impossibility. I wanted to believe it was a hoax, or some hacker, or a mistake. That it couldn't be true, because nuclear war is M.A.D. mutually assured destruction. And crazy, and unthinkable, and just the dumbest fucking thing human beings could do to each other. And yet Trump had been tweeting, engaging in a nuclear pissing contest with Kim Jong-un of North Korea. Just a month earlier, Hawaii had started testing nuclear sirens for the first time since the end of the Cold War. I thought about what might happen in the next few moments. Would we be wiped out in a flash of white light, vaporized or turned to glass? The missile, I thought, would probably be targeted on Honolulu, Hawaii's largest city, with a metro population of nearly a million people. Honolulu is on the island of Oahu, about 116 miles away, but I didn't know how far the blast, or whatever you call it, would travel, or whether we'd have radioactive ash raining down like red-hot cinders for a decade. The alert had said to seek shelter, but there are no shelters. We live on Maui. 
Our house is a single wall construction built in 1957. I looked around at the open windows and felt again the knee-weakening sink, and in an ironic moment lamented never finishing my highboon. I thought about all the things I'd left unfinished, the climbs and stories, raising my sons. I've had a great life and was surprisingly okay with dying in a flash. In some ways, a quick death would be easy, maybe even a relief from the existential ennui that troubles everybody from time to time, some of us more than others, but not these little boys who had all of life yet unlived. Could their fate be so senseless? I held them in the kitchen for a little longer, gaming it out, wondering how to survive the blast and the fallout and the horror show of what was going to happen to North and South Korea and Japan and China and the Pacific Ocean and the mainland. War, martial law, power outages, contamination, burns, shortages, starvation, disease, and death. At any moment, there could be a roaring concussion and mild-high, drifting, radioactive cloud only 100-some miles away. What was I going to do? I learned to climb in southwestern Oklahoma in the late 1970s, and early 1980s, at a time where difficulty was measured not by the grade of the climb, but by its survivability. None of the routes at Quartz Mountain were super hard, mostly 510s, 511s, but almost all of them had sections where if you fell, you'd die, or you'd be horribly broken. Many of the routes were between 100, 200 feet long. Many only had a couple of bolts or pieces of gear to protect the entire span, but it was also the only place to learn to climb within five hours of my home in North Texas. One day I worked up the nerve to try a climb called the Big Bite, a 510, put up by Duane Raleigh. Or maybe it was the S-Wall. It's been so long I can't recall. Let's just, for obvious reasons, say it was the Big Bite, an infamous line responsible for at least one 100-foot fall when Mark Herndon slipped and tried to slow his plunge by dragging his hands across the hot granite. He survived, but he scrubbed his palms down to the bone. I smeared up the low-angled first 50 feet and clipped the lone bolt, charged on higher and higher till I stalled, over a 100 feet off the deck. And the distant bolt, a tiny glint no bigger than the point of a star. I tried to move off the crystal, but my foot slipped, and I clasped the bald slab tighter, pushed my butt out, lifted my heels. I started to slide again and leaned back and brought my weight back over my feet. The rubber gripped. My slide stopped, and I scrambled onto the desert island-like foot crystal and tried to get my breathing back under control. Five minutes passed, ten minutes. It was hot, and sweat dripped off my nose and splattered onto the rock, dampening potential footholds. I slapped chalk on the wet marks and resolved to go. Just move. But I couldn't. But what if... Fifteen minutes later, my feet hurt too bad to hang out any longer. I had to go or melt off. When I finally went, the climbing was wobbly, but easy. That was the lesson. Just move. Even when you think you can't. Just move. I called Uncle Lance Endo, my ex-military Maui-born Kamahina, who had taken part in the missile tracking exercises when he worked at the military telescope on Halekala. He always knows what to do in big rains and hurricanes, and he's related to everybody in Hawaiian government. Lance said, I made calls. It looks real. What do we do, I asked. I'm closing my windows. You shouldn't come outside for 15 days. We'll know in about 40 minutes. 
Okay, Uncle Lance, I said. Aloha, Uncle Hefe, he said unsteadily. I hung up, even more shaken. Can we go outside and play with the chickens, Kai asked. Nobody, help me close the windows. Help when she fill up the jugs. As I filled the bathtub, I called my mom and she asked me to just stay on the line with me, just, just stay on the line. But I wanted to keep the line clear for any glowing gray alerts that I hoped might pop up and read, Oops, we met no ballistic missile threat inbound to Hawaii today. I called my wife, Hannah, who was in Colorado at the time, but she didn't pick up, so I sent her a text, which felt awfully banal. As I took inventory of the canned food in the calculated days, I called my brother, and I choked up a little bit about the boys. Over 40 years of climbing, I've had plenty of scares, but nothing like this ugly lack of agency. When you're climbing, you can always do something. Down climb, rig a rappel, or press on, just move. This was different. But I kept moving anyway, breathing, getting ready, keeping my boys close, calling everyone I loved. For a little while that morning on January 13th, I believed a nuclear warhead could momentarily impact near my home and annihilate my family and possibly kick off a conflict that would poison the entire world. That I'd ever be in a position to believe in such a scenario strikes me as terribly sad. The experience also prompted a few questions to it. Is it always better to be well-informed and available for the ballistic missile alerts, or would it be better to simply disappear up the narrow road to the deep north? How am I going to travel through the short span of life? listening to depressing news governed by liars on both sides, checking my phone every few seconds, or by loving things that are destined to die. The responsible citizen wants to keep voting and texting. The wild one wants to take a hammer and beat his phone into a scrapyard. Uncle Lance said it takes 40 minutes for a missile to travel to Hawaii from North Korea, 38 minutes after the first alert. My screen lit up again with some lowercase letters this time. Emergency alert, there is no missile threat or danger to the state of Hawaii. Repeat, false alarm. One month since the missile alert, I'm looking for some resolution or is it consolation? I reach for the Buddhist sop of interconnection versus dualism, black and white, me and him, us and them, illusions that lie at the root of all suffering. They damn sure lie at the heart of missile alerts. I want to feel connected to all things, but I can't. Perhaps I'm still too sad and unenlightened. Or maybe, as a friend once said, that's the point of being human. To love despite death. To live like everything is connected despite bumping against edges every moment. Today is a Wednesday. The boys are at school. A rooster crows in Makawao, but otherwise it's peaceful and quiet, so I open my haibun and begin writing. If you're a climber and you've surfed Thousand Peaks on the west side of Maui, you've looked in at the 700-foot plug of trachyte Hawaiians call Hanu, or turtle, and wondered if it's climbable. It is. When it rains, my shoulder hurts. Silver strands lace my hair. Forty years of climbing cliffs and mountains have tracked my face and hardened my toenails. Older than Basho, when he died, who was this travel-worn stranger in the mirror? My older son stands taller than my shoulder and 
writes his age in two numbers. Soon he'll be gone, and then the little one will go away. He'll go away too, each son taking all of my heart. What will remain of me? All loves are doomed. Nothing withstands time. The days spiral like elm seeds in a windstorm, and I wonder, am I missing everything? The cure for these heart pangs is a project into which you can pour life force, a chalice. And so the rust-colored rock calls me. Old as igneous, sweat drips, feet slip on cinder cone. We begin. I'd like to thank Noisy Waters for the music. Thanks for listening, and again, thanks for Outdoor Research for helping us bring these stories to life. 